Hey everyone, this is Zach, and on today's show we'll be talking to the co-founders of the independent game studio behind the recently released multi-platform indie title, Bad North. We'll be talking to Oscar Stahlberg and Richard Meredith about how they started out, their experiences working for well-known game studios, and how they went about setting up their own game studio. So before we start talking about your recently released game, Bad North, I wanted to find out a bit more about you guys and where your journey began. Did you guys always know that you wanted to get involved with making video games? And what events happened in your life that took you down the path of taking your first steps to video game development? So I didn't know for certain, but I did as a kid, like making video games. And I used a um, software called The Games Factory uh, and a software called Click and Play before that. So I, a big hobby as a kid was making small sort of games myself at home. But uh, I didn't know that that was like something you could work with until like I got a pamphlet sent out from uh, basically a games uh, school, uh, which is the reason why I moved down to Malmo from Uppsala um, as well. It's a, quite a good fit for me because I've always been interested in both uh, art and in sort of mathematics uh, and sort of logical systems, stuff like that. And video games is one of the few areas where you can combine those two interests. And was that something that was a big part of your your, your childhood? Uh, uh, make, well, making games was one of my many. I always made things. I, I, I drew things. I, I built things in the workshop together with my uh, brothers, uh, stuff like that. So I always enjoyed making things. And video games was like small, tiny video game projects on my computer was one of those things. And how about yourself, Richard? Yeah, it's for me. So I started off pretty young as well, um, although I took quite a big detour in the middle. So I sort of was playing video games quite young. Uh, and then at the age of 10, I think, I started like learning to program in BBC Basic um, on Acorn Archimedes, make, like, with the goal of making games with that kind of thing. Um, I remember made it like a little artillery game, like little tanks game where you type in the angles and the velocities and they fire. Uh, Shots each other, and one of my brother's friends uh, helped me with the trigonometry for that to get vectors. I didn't really know what vectors were, but I understood like once he showed me how to do the trigonometry, uh, like how to you know make the make the projectiles arc through the sky. I then the big reason why I had a detail was I was aware that you could do this as a job because one of my friends at school had uh, a brother who worked on Final Fantasy VII which obviously at the time we all thought he was super cool. Um, but he hated it because it turns out he was working in localization QA and all he did was uh, just go through conversation trees, checking for grammar and spelling and stuff like that. Um, so I just got this impression that the games industry was awful and terrible and it was a horrible place to work. So I kind of like uh, meandered away from that, um, carried on doing things that were sort of a mixture of tech and creative things. So I did a bunch of uh, web design stuff and and like for a while did sort of um, architectural drawing. I thought it was going to be an architect for a while with the like, you know, that combination of things. Ended up doing a electronic engineering degree and then worked as a software engineer for a while before I actually ended up getting back into games in my mid 20s. So that's quite a sort of detour in the middle um yeah yeah i mean that's a very broad skill set that you've acquired along the way what was the turning point for you that made you go right i want to get into video games development um for me that was kind of uh i, I after i left uh university i was working as a 
software engineer and I wasn't doing any of like the electronics stuff that I did at university and electronics and software they're quite related but there's quite a big difference in the sort of way you approach those things and I ended up through a series of uh, accidents kind of getting involved with uh, the first little big planet game at just making some of my spare time and that kind of scratched that itch of like sort of electronics-y uh, mechanical contraption type things because their uh, logic system in the first game was very odd but kind of interesting uh, it was a nice little puzzle to solve and then through that that ended up being kind of like uh route into doing things professionally i went down to media molecules offices uh, for a game jam as a pr stunt for like little big planet 2 and then they got me a connection with Tarsia, which then got me into the industry. Um, I know you both have different skill sets that are very complementary, and that's why this whole thing works. Um, could each of you tell us a little bit more about uh, your individual skill sets and how you've honed those crafts? Uh, sure. So I'm, uh, I come from a kind of technical art, or I, I started as an artist, but I've always, I've become more and more technical as time has passed on. So I, I worked as a technical artist at uh, Ubisoft Massive, for example. I'd say my skill set is, well, I'm fairly, I have a pretty good base sort of just artist skill set where like I can draw properly, I can, uh, yeah, I can I can do like proper 2D designs and stuff like that. And I have fundamental competence in, in 3D graphics also. I can build nice little mod. Uh, models, even rig them and animate them, stuff like that. Uh, but then I've also gotten very into uh, procedural arts uh, and writing shaders and stuff like that. So like kind of doing art through figuring out what the sort of logic behind the art is. So like a typical thing I do is I look at, well, either I'm drawing something myself and I get frustrated because it's repetitive. And then I think like, okay, there's got to be a system behind this. There got, there's got to be a way to automate this, to build, the, build an algorithm that does this instead of me. Or like walking around, just looking at like buildings in the street or like cities on a map, and thinking about okay, what are the what are the systems that produce this? Can they be simplified and written out in an algorithm that produces this, so that I don't have to draw it uh, myself? That's pretty cool. And and if I'm not mistaken, you also worked at Ubisoft as a technical artist for a while. Yeah, exactly. I worked at uh, Ubisoft Massive, also here in Malmo. Um, I worked on the division. And uh, I had a pretty fun job there because I, uh, well, I started as, uh, yeah, as a technical artist, which mostly for me entailed doing like shader work, uh, which was fun. I liked doing shaders, uh, but it was a lot of making tools for other artists to then use, right? So make shaders that then artists would use uh, or like artists requesting shaders that I would then make um, for them. And that's all right. And technical artists is often a very tool centric role, but I kind of, I felt a little bit limited in making tools for others because I wanted to produce content myself. And also when you make tools for others, you have to kind of dumb them down a little bit or make them like simple and understandable. And you have to spend a lot of time just sort of preventing people from making errors or doing the wrong things with them rather than sort of exploring the possibilities. Uh, so eventually I actually got picked up by the, uh, by the UI team at Massive because they had this plan to do a super three-dimensional animated UI for the division. Uh, and I got to take a crack at making the, they were gonna do like a three-dimensional holographic 3D map for the game. And I got to take a stab at sort of seeing if I could actually implement that uh, in the engine and uh, yeah that worked out quite well uh, so I got permanently sort of put into the UI team uh, and got to uh, 
uh, yeah, do a bunch of like cool animated 3D UI and also work with the that holographic map throughout the game project, which was super fun because that was I doing that map. I got the opportunity to like write the shaders for the map, do the scripting for the map, like the interaction design and uh, the animations for it, like the how cool everything's supposed to look when you open it up and everything sort of animates into place. So it was it was like I got to build my own little mini game inside the big game and also sort of got use of my the the breadth of my of my skill set you started out by doing something that you enjoyed but it wasn't necessarily as fulfilling as it could have been yeah for the listeners that are out there that might be in a potentially similar role um, and they have these ideas and they have this kind of drive to want to do more what would be your advice to them in regards to taking the next step and pushing your way in towards a role that you think you'd be better suited at and you'd want to have experience in? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Well, first of all, like the earlier in your career you are, the less you, of course, have the sort of leverage to pick and choose yourself what you're going to do. Uh, but if you like, if you work at a, at a good place, and I, I think Massive was actually really good at this, they were really good at sort of letting people slip into the niches where they fit the best. Uh, so if I could just like do do some well do some do some experimentation in in engine at work and also do I did a lot of experimentation at home too I always had side projects going on to sort of try and uh, well I mostly did it because I enjoyed it and I had like things I wanted to explore methods I wanted to explore uh, and then I show that to people and then people you know start thinking oh okay oh but maybe you could do this part of the game then or maybe you could have a look at this thing so I think if you're at a good company. Uh, they will, if you if you are interested and driven and doing your own things. I mean, of course, in addition to doing the things you're supposed to do, uh, they should be able to, or you know, hopefully they will be able to let you sort of go towards the the niche where you do have your interests. Hopefully, otherwise, you know, do it on your spare time and. Uh, um, yeah, put it in your portfolio. So hopefully at the next place you get hired at, you'll do something that's a little more similar to what you want to do. And after a few years of that, hopefully you're really good at what you're doing. And maybe you even have a job where you're doing what you want to do. I think that's probably what a lot of people um, don't always think about doing and, and probably should be doing. And I know that you've done a lot of kind of um, work in your own spare time and you've got uh, a bit of a, an internet following around what you've been doing. And, and Richard, I know that you worked, as you mentioned earlier, on the Little Big Planet series. Um, yeah. You also did uh, worked on a more recent title, Little Nightmares, which I recently got my hands on and I absolutely love on the Switch. Can you tell us a little bit more about that project and what your involvement was like and what that experience was like? Um, yeah, so I mean, uh, Little Nightmares, um, what I did on that project was... Uh, gameplay programming and technical animation for Six, the player character. So um, throughout the entire project, almost everything that I did was related to that character. Um, and it was predominantly me and an animator working on that, uh, with some support from the lead designer and uh, a technical animator to do uh, some rigging and things. But the majority of it was me and Marcus just working backwards and forwards on just spending a lot of time getting that character to feel really nice. Um, everything in terms of how she moves and how she animates and uh, all of the stuff with the, you know, we use a lot of uh, IK in that uh, project to make her sort of feel really connected to the world. Um, 
And that was it's the, the biggest sort of like uh, pure gameplay programming type uh, thing that I've done so far. On the Little Big Planet series, I was bouncing between programming and design. Uh, I did a lot of design for um, tools and create mode in uh, Little Big Planet Beta and 3. A um, little bit of code implementation and then some a bit of gameplay coding at times. Whereas Little Nightmares was much more gameplay programming, uh, mechanics and uh, movement and player controls and stuff. Um, and it was my first time actually working with animation. So I've kind of always been like interested in the way that things like move and feel and how that, uh, especially in dynamic situations when you're controlling a player character, you know, you're always taking inputs, you're always changing how things are and making that feel smooth in a dynamic way is really interesting to me. So actually getting into uh, doing all of the animation blending and all of the tech animation for that was like a really fun, a really nice challenge there. Um, I'm really happy with how that turned out and how that character looks. Well, you've done a fantastic job on it. I'm really enjoying the game. In our timeline, up until this point, you've both gained experience working for big companies and working on big titles. But how did you both meet? And what made you decide that it was probably a good idea to set up an independent game studio together? Well, um, so I was actually, I before the year before that, I worked uh, as a contractor for Us Two's uh, Malmo studio. I did that for a year. And um, I had, as usual, as usual, I worked on a, a procedural sort of generation thing on the side. And because I just come across this super interesting algorithm that I figured you could repurpose and use for like making cool 3D environments out of 3D meshes. Uh, and I figured like I had a bunch of money saved up and I figured, well, this is like, I should go indie at some point. So maybe this is a good time to go indie. Like my contract that I was running up and the question was like, was I going to prolong uh, renew the contract or was I going to do something else? And then I figured, well, this, this might as well be the time. Uh, let's, let's try it now. Uh, they asked me if I wanted to do like half time there or, and half time working on my own thing, but I figured, no, it's, it's better to do full time, full focus. And you know, then if it doesn't work out, then I'll just come back or come back to massive or something like that. Uh, so I started working on, uh, sort of trying to figure out what kind of game would be suitable to, uh, put on top of that procedural generation algorithm, basically. Uh, it took me like a few months to come up with basically kind of the basic combat system of Bad North. Like, yeah, it's going to be armies. They're going to fight each other on a quite um, dynamic simulator level. It's going to be a cute, minimalistic style. Uh, but then I realized quite quickly that I will not be able to pull this off on my own. I'm like, as a programmer, I'm pretty much mostly like self-taught and not for a very long time either. So I figured I, I definitely need a proper programmer who kind of knows who, what, how things are done. And I also need one with a better eye for game design than me. Uh, I'm, I think I have an okay eye for game design, but it's never been a strong passion of mine. I don't play that much board games, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, so me and Rich, we met at uh, uh, sort of, th there are these kind of regular meetups here in Malmo that like, are organized by an uh, organization called Game Habitat, and they had like a workshop series for people who were interesting interested in going indie. 
and uh, yeah, we both went to those those and uh, met there. Yeah, so at this point, I was sort of uh, not in quite the same place as Oscar was. I was sort of finishing up uh, Little Nightmares, and I decided to move on after that project. Um, and my idea was to uh, spend a year maybe doing some contracting, like working around a few different places to like see how different companies worked. You know, I had six years at Tarsia at that point. And I wanted to look around and see how other companies did things and different processes and ways of approaching games. Um, with the view of being like, well, if I'm sort of contracting for one on a semi-temporary sort of basis, that means that there's like, I'm much more free if opportunities come up. And then before I even really started that, uh, that process of sort of being free and available, Oscar approached me and was like, do you want to help out on this game and like um it was even at that stage like at the early stage it was obviously so much potential there um and i'd already been like as we've been you know we met during these um workshops uh and oscar like a lot of things he was doing was he always had stuff on his phone because he was like um doing little experiments and things and then like targeting his phone so he could always have them on his phone and show people so I'd already been like seeing some of the stuff you'd been doing previously, and it all looks super nice and super interesting. So I already had in the back of my mind that at some point, like if I went full indie, it'd be like good to work with him because um, the things he's producing is are really nice. So that was kind of an obvious uh, yes from me when he asked me to join up. And then we sort of like we hadn't ever worked together before, so we did like a little trial period. Um, I forget if it was a month or two months um, to see how it would work, but things worked out pretty nice. So then we, yeah, uh, carried on this project together. And it's been it's been really like it was obviously a little bit of a gamble because we didn't, as Richard said, we didn't know each other before. And I, I mean, I kind of knew that his technical skill set would at least decently uh, complement mine. But it turned, but I think also his. Uh, sort of more general skill set really does because I am fairly disorganized and sort of spontaneous when I work. Uh, I just sort of play around with the project a bit, change things here and there, and I sort of get a feel for different things and what I want to do, and I get sidetracked a lot, which I think uh, mostly works fairly well, but it doesn't scale super well over time. Like when you have larger timelines you have to meet and like uh, specific sort of focuses like actual bugs you need to fix within a given time frame without trailing off and just adding new bugs to it uh, i'm not super good at those things but but rich is is much better than me much more sort of organized keeps tracks of things write lists sort of is good at answering emails and stuff like that so it also turns out that he's doing a lot of the um like what kind of like, side yeah businessy yeah. side and also like organizing side and like yeah. keeping track of things and and uh, uh yeah making sure we're working on the right stuff and that's been that's been super helpful that was that was not something i i had in mind uh when we when or that was not something i was specifically looking for but it's been it's been really helpful yeah i can imagine it's more than what you bargain for but in a good sense that you get all these extra skill sets exactly yeah. We've, we've briefly mentioned Bad North, and, and I'm pretty sure most people would have already come across the game. Um, it's been getting great reviews across the internet. In your own words, what is Bad North? Sure, Bad North is a uh, 
minimalistic real-time tactics roguelite about fighting Vikings. Um, the setup is that you uh, are uh, in control of like a couple of small squads of um, little people, little cute people. They live on their nice, uh, well, kind of bleak, but kind of cute uh, little islands in the middle of the sea. And then the Vikings come and try to murder you and burn down your houses. So you have to fight off the Vikings a little bit. And then you sort of like gather what resources you can and move on to the next island. So you're kind of hopping from island to island, um, trying to stay ahead of uh, the main fleet of Vikings and trying to like level up your troops and uh, recruit new people and find uh, special bits of war gear to to buff your troops with. Um, the entire thing is procedure generated using a lot of tech that Oscar's built. So each time you restart, and you will need to restart because you're probably not going to complete the game on the first go. Um, each time you restart, you'll get a new campaign with the new uh, map of islands. Each island is new. The characters that you'll come across are new um, procedure generated portraits and names for them. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the it, it's roguelite, uh, emphasis on mm -hmm. the lights. Mostly it's the procedural nature and there's permadeath. So each of your squads um, has a like commander character. Uh, and if the individual soldiers, they can die and they will die because it's, you know, mm -hmm. war and, and sadly people die in war. Uh, <laughs> and that's okay. You just sort of, they, they replenish after each, um, after each uh, island. But if the the central character dies, then you lose that squad and all their updates forever. So it's sort of a very like um, there's always that threat hanging over you whenever you're uh, fighting. Yeah, and the game is the game is quite uh, seemingly casual. Like it's quite easy to mm. get into. What you're doing in the, well, you play on these small levels, so you don't need to like pan around a minimap and keep track of things all over the place. Uh, though things can happen on the back of the island if there's a mountain on the in the middle that you you can't see from all sides, um, and you control up to four units at once. And mostly, what you do is just telling the units where to stand, and then they sort of engage in combat on their own terms. So, like your infantry units will like run up and try and kill units who charge them or who are a threat to them. Um, yeah, so it's, so it's like very easy interaction, very easy to get into. We've had a bunch of people who don't like necessarily normally play strategy games, playing it and enjoying it. Uh, but then the just by the nature of the dynamic simulation and the kind of rock, paper, scissors things going on and that like the shape and layout of the islands really matter to what kind of strategies you can adapt, it does get quite uh, deep uh, after a bit. Oh, for sure. I mean, it looks really cute. I don't know how you guys have managed to pull off such a cute looking game that is all about uh, a war. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Um, and the more I, I read upon it, the more videos I've watched on it, um, you, you you start to get a sense that, you know, there is some real strategies going on and the mechanics are, are really intricate. Um, which I think is fantastic. Um, you've already given a little bit of insight into how the idea came about. Could you expand upon that? How did the idea for Bad North come about and how did you develop on it? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's actually a fairly linear, logical sort of progression of ideas. So as I said, I started with having this sort of procedural uh, algorithm and I tried building some different things with it. 
and then I, so I needed to have a game that fits on the type of environments that that algorithm will, would produce. So that would be slightly smaller environments, so not like huge uh, landscapes, but uh, yeah, smaller environments. And if you have a small environment, then, well, it might as well be an island because islands are nice. And then you get to do some water and some <laughs> reflection. And that's always nice. You have a sort of very bounded thing. I've always kind of liked diorama uh, things. A lot of my art mm -hmm. uh, revolves around dioramas or like small worlds that you're looking at from the outside rather than the, the opposite. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and since it's procedurally generated, you don't really have that much control over what like the game design of each level is going to be. So a strategy game works really well because then you can, uh, like you can play that on any shape island and it can be fun on any shape island because uh, depending on where the enemies are coming from and like where you can put your range units or stuff like that, um, you can sort of, yeah, really use the, the layout of the island. Uh, and you're defending instead of attacking because that means you can spend more time on one island, right? Because if you were attacking the island, it would be pretty fast to sort of take over the whole island. Uh, mm. But if you're defending, we can keep sending the enemies to you. So it just means you spend a little more time on the same island. Um, yeah, I also went into melee combat, both because I've always been interested in doing some, like seeing if I could pull off melee combat that looks good and kind of alive there's a lot of really bad looking melee combat out there where you have units just standing next to each other hacking at each other until the uh, health bar goes to zero and then they die and then they go off hack at someone else so i wanted like dynamic looking mm -hmm. uh, living combat where each unit actually looks like they sort of have a thought process going on they panic sometimes they uh, yeah like avoid threats take opportunities stuff get encouraged by fighting along their peers stuff like that um, I had also been very interested in the kind of technical aspects of doing a lot of units at once, like how would you pathfind a lot of units at once, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so then I had the basis of, okay, it's going to be on an island, it's going to be a strategy game with melee, uh, you're moving um, squads around, and then if it's on an island, then you know the enemies might as well come on boats, because that's how you get to an island. And at that point, like, yeah, if they come on boats, like, they might as well be Vikings. Why not? Um, it, which also fits thematically because the Viking Age was, I mean, it was during the kind of Dark Age, uh, as some would call it, uh, which is a little bit of a low point in European sort of complexity of civilization, I would say. So it was time mm -hmm. during which there were a lot of quite small scales battles taking place because there weren't that many sort of big political units capable of rage, racing large uh, organized uh, armies. So it also fit with a kind of small scale thing. It sounds like you were taking control of a lot of the creative process and, and, and the, the mechanics of the game. How did you guys work as a team to, to kind of make this happen? What were the delegations of roles and, and um, did you guys come together to pitch in ideas and, and kind of storyboard things out? Well, I think what Oscar described just then is actually a lot of the decision-making that was up to the point when I came onto the project. Yeah. This was kind of like the, the outline of what the project was when I came onto it. Yeah. Um, and then from that point, it was a lot of like, obviously there was a, a solid core there and that made sense. Um, and a lot of that was riffing around that um, and working out what we could do so I think like um, 
from from that point we were then looking at like what the you know because to, to begin with in the game you're just kind of placing units and they fight where they are um which is nice it kind of gets around a lot of the actions per minute and micromanagement stuff that happens in strategy that puts a lot of people off um and makes it quite inaccessible but it's it is a little bit limited and we managed to do a lot with just positioning but on top of that as you progress through the game you will unlock more abilities which are more kind of actively triggered so you uh Things like um, your infantry can jump off of cliffs onto enemies below them, or you can pick up an item that's a bomb that you throw. Uh, a few things like that, which involve like you triggering them uh, at the right time and choosing where they target. Uh, you don't use those things very often. They're all either like limited use per level or quite long cooldowns. So you're still mostly like, um, uh, what's it called? mostly just uh, positioning but we add those things in so part of the progression was like how do we how do we do the upgrade system how do we unlock these things well what kind of additional enemies are we going to have what classes are we going to have and a lot of this was like back and forth and oscar was kind of uh, quite in control of a lot of those things simply because he was writing most of the core combat stuff uh so he had visibility on like what was more or less feasible and he has much more visibility on that than I do. Um, but then I think for the actual design work, it was quite, it's quite a lot of back and forth and like finding a place where, you know, what's right for the game, what's right for what we're doing. Um, I think there's been like good discussions there. There's been a little bit of conflict there because I think we have slightly different sensibilities about design sometimes. Yeah, but it's always been possible to sort of bring it around to like what's working and how things fit together. Yeah, um, and it's been pretty nice and in terms of implementation. It's been kind of like there are sort of areas where uh, sort of Oscar has more influence on, like the the, the core combat and the algorithms, um, things like the controls and uh, interactions. I've been more involved with. Yeah, you yeah. you kind of slid into slide into those roles kind of naturally because you take on whenever there's a new thing to be done like the person who feels more most comfortable with it takes it on and then you typically expand from there like if you start doing one control thing then you do another one and then you like build a bit of a system that ties them together stuff and you start thinking holistically about them yeah um, that happens quite naturally but also with the design process that was a big like when i first when we first had that meeting um uh over at the uh, simpan uh, mm -hmm. Uh, just after I'd email you asking if you wanted to join and like mm. showing the game, just like hearing your like your impressions of the game and your like hearing the kind of ideas that you came up with around it just from that first impression, that all, I already could hear the, there that like we are like at least somewhat aligned just from the beginning. I mean, obviously not perfectly, but like quite aligned. Like most of your, most of the ideas you, you came up with sort of made sense and, and to me. So I, I could see even there that, yeah, there's there's probably, like I, I think we, we can probably align on, on this and, and take, like come up with a, um, a, a direction for the game together kind of. And I think part of that is like uh, my, my approach to game design I'm not. I'm not actually particularly good at coming up with ideas. Like a lot of people think, the game game designers like coming up with ideas. I'm very rarely the one who like has the initial idea for a game and then 
drives it. But I'm often involved in working with someone else who has the core idea to iterate and improve and expand that. And I find that it's very, and then that naturally leads you to like, uh, not just having ideas to throw into the game. It's more like actually thinking about what this idea is and what fits with that. So that's very much my process and my kind of inspiration in game design is looking at what's kind of there to begin with and seeing how it all fits together and what else could fit and how to tweak things to to improve that um, holistically. Which which worked really well in this game because it is like it has a solid core that came together quite fast and then the rest of it is like okay how do we how do we cater to this core how do we do new yeah. things that fit with this core that play with this core in a fun way. I mean the core the core combat I don't think is like it obviously has changed but the the principles of it haven't changed since I came on the project that's just been there and there are some things that have been added there some of the stuff like uh, the spears I think. The spears, but also things like enemies getting, like, or units getting stunned and getting, yeah. like, that yeah. thing is quite a, like, you know, has been added and changed the dynamics and yeah. a few things, but a lot of it is just how how it was before. Well, it sounds like you both, uh, you know, have played to your own strengths, um, which, which is a fantastic way to, to operate. Um, but it also sounds like a lot of the original core idea was, was, was there when Oscar presented the idea to you. Um, just for the benefit of others that may have certain ideas or may be looking to collaborate and, and, and create their own indie studio, um, would you recommend uh, developers to, to, to build something, even if it's an, an MVP, a minimum viable, minimum viable product, um, and then take that and approach somebody to partner with? Or would you just say it'd be better to just come up with a concept from ground up? Well, that's right. I think, I think there's, a, there's a few people who take the approach of, I'm going to assemble a team or, you know, I'm going to sit together with my friends. And so like get the right people together first. And then we together come up with a project, which would mean that everyone is on board that project and sort of came up with it together. I'm sure that can work on some occasions, but I think there's a risk there also that, well, first of all, I don't believe that much in doing too much design work in together in two big teams. Um, even when I think when you're I think when you're two people and after you've developed sort of a, a, a language and a way to sort of like when you was you're fairly confident around each other, you can do good design work together also. But I think coming up with the initial ideas in a big team, it's a bit like, you know, design by committee where you I think you could you could potentially do it, but you might come up with something quite bland. I, I feel like a lot of the creative process is sort of riffing on things yourself. And then coming to someone and say, hey, I came up with this idea. And that person says, oh, that's cool, but it's bad for this and this and this reason. And then you go back and like, hmm, is it really? And then like uh, you try and figure something else out. Uh, I don't think, I don't think it's, I think it's hard, it's hard to, I mean, at least for me, it's hard to do proper creativity together. It works sometimes and it works when you're iterating on things and it, it's great to uh, critique things together, but sort of coming up with things from scratch together, I think it's hard. And I think it's also easier to, like I, I've gotten a, a few times, I've gotten approached by people putting together a team and sort of saying, yeah, we'll like, we'll get the right people and then we'll figure out what to build from there. But I, but I don't want to join a team where I don't know what I'm going to build because I want to work on something that I really, like to me, it's super important to work on a project 
I like and feel passionate about. And if I'm going to join a team and work together, going to come up with something, it, it might not be something that I am passionate about. So I'd rather either come up with something myself and then like ask someone else, hey, do you want to join on this? Or what do you think about this? Or someone approaching me saying, hey, I got this really cool core idea. And then I could see what that is, hear them talk about it and see would this, like, can I, can I become passionate about this and then join it? That is some fantastic advice. And I think um, you're absolutely right when you say that. Well, I'd like to give a counterpoint to that. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I'm actually more, I am more, uh, a lot more convinced Oscar is of the, value of forming a good team and a good team being able to produce good things and there's sort of some caveats with that but like um so for example at kind of some game jams i've been to them and been confident we're going to make something cool in the game jam uh because i know the people that i'm working with and i know what their strengths and weaknesses are and we know each other and respect each other i think that it's a bit of a um it's definitely a, an important thing to think about that, you know, design by committee can be a, a problem, but it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, designed by committee just because you have a team of sort of five people. Right? If you know each other's strengths and weaknesses, if you know that there is like someone who's uh, better with the design process, someone who's better with the art process, someone who's more technically capable and can guide you in the direction of like what's feasible to do uh, to get this up and running. Um, and you're not all trying to just like drive in your own ideas, but you're sort of yeah. like uh, working together on that. And also the sort of question of like, do you, is it going to be a project that you're, again, you're interested in? Part of that in terms of team forming is finding a team with similar sensibilities to you. Yeah. So I sort of like, um, I wouldn't sort of form a team with someone who just wants to make, uh, MMOs or MOBAs because those aren't things that are super interesting to me, right? And that would just be like, before you even made the team, it'd be like, yeah, it's probably not going to work. And I think there's um, there's definitely issues there. And I think that it's uh, definitely issues in terms of um, uh, less experienced teams as well. So when I've looked at this, it's normally been like forming a team with some people who I know quite well, they're experienced, we're used to working in teams either together or with the other people. Um, we're used to sort of slotting into roles. In a less experienced team, I think it can much easily, much more easily become something where it's like, everyone has this game idea they want to throw into the thing and everyone tries to make the thing into their idea. And then you get something that's disjointed and, and at best bland. So um, yeah, I think there's like, there's definitely different approaches. It depends what uh, the people you know are, uh, how they are and how you are. Again, I think Oscar's uh, viewpoint is a little bit skewed because of the fact that he is more than capable of doing uh, design, code, and art to a very high prototype level at the minimum, um, which makes it a lot easier for him on his own to sit and produce th something that speaks to other people without anyone else involved. So. I think looking at what your skills are, what the people around your skills are, what your sensibilities are, and how you might work as a team, that's all kind of significant as well. Um, but in general, I would actually discourage people from trying to form a team around their first game and go indie on their, when they haven't kind of made games as part of a team previously anyway. 
So you think it'd be better? You think it'd be a better idea to jump on board a a project that might be in prototype stage? I, yeah. I, I, so first of all, I, I I totally agree with Richard's points, and I think uh, I, I think they were were well made. Uh, yeah, I uh, I think it is better to uh, jo- not necessarily join. I mean, I think it's like I didn't start by joining a, an indie company. I start by joining Ubisoft, which is like as far from indie as you can get, basically. And I think that's great. I always knew I kind of probably would like to do smaller things, indie things in the future. But on a bigger studio like that, you're just surrounded by so many competent senior people, like people who've worked in the industry for like 10 years and stuff like that. So there's so much to learn there. Yeah, and like even, uh, there's so much to learn just on the development side uh, before you go indie, but like once you go indie, it's like you have to start dealing with business and community and marketing and all this other stuff that is like, even as someone who's like, uh, I, I had what, six, six years um, experience professionally making games before I went indie. And it was still such a big thing to be like all the additional stuff you have to deal with um, around having an indie company. And we even have a publisher, Raw Fury as well, who are like handling a lot of that stuff for us. But still there's so much that we have to do and so much that we have to keep track of on top of just making the game because we actually need to get it to people and get people to play it and buy it and you know um all that stuff and like even even handling things like uh, the whole project planning and like different phases of production like even having been through that cycle multiple times it's still hard to manage it by on your own uh, on your own project so I think that there is like, and it, it's possible to go straight from like your first game to be an indie game, but I, and maybe it's because I'm old now, but I look at that and I just imagine that would be so exhausting. And I, I can't, Im- and, and some people manage it and have loads of respect for them, but I don't, I think it's a it's a very risky thing to do. For sure. I mean, I, I see a lot of people coming out of five, six years worth of industry experience in various fields. And they've all said, you know, in, in hindsight, they're glad that they did that before they set their own company up. Um, just because of the experience and the planning and organizational skills that you learn. If you think about it, when you're currently making your own company and you're running it you think shit if i didn't have these skills i'd be totally fucked i guess that brings me to my next question which was around what kind of tools and procedures and resources did you guys use when creating bad north yeah i mean we so we make the game in uh, unity like most other uh, indie developers uh yeah i mean aside from that it's just like some basic content creation tools like you know photoshop i use maya myself i should probably learn blender but i've never managed to uh, <clears throat> yeah um uh, we use slack for internal communication and communication with uh our publisher we use jira for bugs and were you guys breaking down um your tasks into like weekly sprints and stuff like that to- no no yeah that's a, that's a good question no we well we haven't been super structured about planning. We've had like a wider timeline, and that's also something our publisher has wanted us to kind of have. Uh, but most of the development, we've kind of like sometimes we've made tasks, but usually we've just sort of forgotten them and not like 
you know, main tasks in Jira, but usually we've just forgotten them and like not updated them, stuff like that, especially early on in the game. Because like when you are only two people and the project is so small, you don't need to plan that much. Like we do, we do also, yeah, speaking of procedures, we do have a morning meeting every morning where we talk about like what, you know, standard thing, what we did yesterday, what we're going to do today, stuff like that. Uh, but that's mostly so that I get out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> the main reason why that meeting exists is so that I get out of bed at a, at a, at a vaguely sensible time. No, it's, it's not only that. It's also to make sure I actually do the thing I said I was going to do. <laughs> mm. yeah. it, it also allows you to hold each other and yourselves accountable as exactly. well for your yeah, tasks. Definitely. Yeah. So and that's have, kind of, it's usually enough that it's not that Richard say, oh, but you said you were going to do this yesterday. Why didn't you do that yesterday? It's much more me saying, like, I have to tell him, yeah, um, so I said I was going to do this thing, but instead I did this other thing. And then I just hear a, mm-hmm, from Richard. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't need to be angry or, like, express his disappointment in me any stronger than that. But that's just like, okay, I'm not being the predictable person I would like to be. Let's see if I can do a little bit better today. But I mean, there's mm-hmm. also, like, we, so we do the morning meetings. We have a weekly call with, uh, with, um, Liam, who's our uh, producer at Raw Fury, he's our primary contact at Raw Fury, um, just to check in each week uh, and to sync up on some things. But I mean, in terms of actually breaking down tasks and stuff, part of the thing there is that we have very little, like, uh, direct collaborative tasks. So in terms of, like, in a, in a larger team, in a more sort of traditional team, like, you'll often be, like, collaborating heavily with someone else. So with... Um, uh, with little nightmares, uh, a typical task for me would involve, you know, sitting down with Dennis the designer and Marcus the animator, working out what this feature would be, um, a lot of focus on how it was going to look and feel, and then me and Marcus would go away and I'd start writing some code. He'd start like working on some really basic animations. He'd send me the basic animations. I'd hook them up. I'd send them back to him. He'd iterate them. We'd go back and forth, and like we were, you know working on each other's stuff and passing things backwards and forwards sort of um, potentially multiple times per day. Whereas in Bad North, um, we largely work independently of each other on tasks. So it becomes like you can generally, we'll talk about what a thing is, have an understanding of what the thing is, and then go away and work on it. And occasionally sync up on progress, or if like we're not sure about something, we'll like riff on it. But a lot of the time, we're not actually actively interacting on a specific part of the game at the same time. Yeah, and that makes it a lot easier to just do things very broad strokes. Yeah, and it also gives both of us a quite a uh, sort of holistic uh, picture of the areas in the game in which we are working, which also makes it slightly less like you need slightly lessens the need for structure because you kind of have that like the, the broad idea in, in your head uh, yeah i guess it gives each of you also um some more creative space as well to, to kind of implement these things without having someone uh, constantly changing and chopping the, these ideas once you've agreed for sure yeah that's a big part of it and that's that makes that that just way makes uh, work way more enjoyable as well and it's also sped things up because i mean this project like uh Oscar started working on this game sort of end of 2016. So it's less than two years from initial idea to shipping the game. Yeah. Um, and like a, a big chunk of that is like 
A, it was set up to be sort of like quite labor uh, unintensive, yeah. I guess is the word. Um, but also there's things like we have uh, some pretty complex procedure generation things, but uh, because Oscar uh, makes the assets for those, he's written the algorithms for them, he's implemented them in game, that entire pipeline is all controlled by him. And there's very little handover and information, like communication overhead within that, which often if you have a sort of art assets going into a very kind of algorithmic or technical um, system, there's normally quite a lot of overhead in just communicating between artists and tech, like, okay, this is how the system works, this is how you have to make the assets, oh, but this is how I want it to look, this is how it needs to be, so the system needs to change this way. And like, that back and forth is normally very time consuming, but now Oscar sits on both sides of that and there is no communication overhead there. Yeah, that's a that's a huge. I think that's a huge huge part of it. That's one of our big uh, leverages that sort of uh, helps us punch above our weight. I think absolutely. I mean, it sounds like it's a huge time saver as well yeah. for you guys. Yeah. When you guys when you'd originally conceived the idea of Bad North, um, did you do any testing to find out if there was a market for this or what the market demand for this type of game would be? No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> None <laughs> Literally of that. zero. Yeah. Well, considering obviously you guys have done really well in hindsight, is that something that you think you could have done, or was that something you'd like to do for the next game? I don't know. To me, it's like a thing with working indie is like I want to work on projects that I get excited about. Because if I'm just going to make what the market wants, then I might as well go work for a proper company and have a predictable salary. So I think it's I think it's much more important to think about what do, what do I want to work on what can I get passionate about and like because then you're gonna you then work's gonna be much more fun you're gonna make it better it's gonna end up looking looking better feeling better and also you can you can scale it the other way you can think like this is the game I want to make and then have a I mean we haven't done any proper research, but you kind of have a vague idea of like, okay, but what do I think the market would be for that game? And then sort of scale the scope of the game to that market rather than the the other way. Rather than trying to find a game that would fit a huge market, you can say, like, okay, I think there's a niche for this game, but I don't think it's huge. So I'll just try and contain the scope, contain production, contain costs. Because obviously with this, with a small team like ours, you don't have to sell that many copies to make a lot of money. It's also going back. Um, I said no, we didn't do any market research, but realistically, you know, the um, Oscar has been putting stuff out on Twitter and getting quite a lot of attention for the stuff that he does, which uh, and that's kind of that that was already happening before Bad North. That's accelerated since then, yeah. And that is indicative of the fact that uh, what he has been making and what this game is is interesting to people. And when, you know, you show it to anyone, they immediately get interested by it. It looks and and has a, a feeling to it that is that sparks interest in people. And also, like, last year at Gamescom, we went there, we were showing it off to people in the business area at Gamescom. And that's when we kind of realized that, like, it, it was sort of something we were thinking about, making it accessible. Um, but then we realized there were an awful lot of people that, like the idea of playing strategy games, but don't play strategy games because strategy games are uh, overwhelming uh, and don't invite you in. 
they're quite exclusionary in terms of like how much they expect you to know and do and um, be able to do before you can start having fun. So I think we were always looking at that and we have kind of guided the project from then based upon some of those observations of like seeing how people reacted to it and what people were saying and why people were interested in the game. So it's not really traditional market research, but we have been listening. It's not like we sat in a corner with our like hands over our ears, like just making the thing that we thought would be cool. We have been listening and bringing that in. And we're sort of going to continue to do that post-launch as well. There's some things that we want to get in that either things that we didn't have time for before launching that we're already thinking about, but things that have come up since then um, to improve the game and uh, make the game more enjoyable. So yeah. I think formal formal market research is it's hard to do as a uh, small indie team with limited resources. And it's also like questionable, mm -hmm. uh, both like... Um, business-wise and uh, creatively. Like if you're just doing what the market wants, as Oscar says, like as a two-person team, if we're doing just what the market wants, someone with more resources, more time, more people is going to do the same thing. Yeah. Right? And, and then what, what do we have to offer if we're just doing the same thing as them but with less resources? Yeah. And it's also the, I mean, doing like, even worse, you, you're not really doing what the market wants. You're doing what the market wanted two years ago when you did yeah. the research. And also, no, what the market thought it wanted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah. Not, it's, it's so far off. And I think like uh, uh, it, it, those kind of things make sense for um, AAA companies that are trying to they – need, they have huge budgets, need to be a huge market. They need to uh, – sort of give people something that is both familiar and a little bit different. And I, I don't, it's not, it's not a good place to be if you're indie. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I think, I think the point you made was really good that, uh, yeah, just constantly putting things out there, putting gifts of the game out there and see what the response is and sort of, I don't think it has been that much sort of consciously looking at sort of, okay, what are people commenting? Let's make the game more like they are commenting, but more like, you kind of feel that you get more response when you do some things versus when you do other things. And then you kind of, you're more encouraged to take things in that, that direction and do the, more of those kind of things. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great, and that's of course combined sort of marketing and market research as one. It's kind of probing the market a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, you get, it gets a great opportunity to build up a, a, a following that you can then directly sell to once you're ready for launch. Exactly. And it's also it's also hugely motivating, to be fair, because just like, I mean, sort of sitting at home working uh, and just like having one other person to work with, uh, I want to show people, when I, if I've made something nice, I want to come say to people, hey, look at what I did. And just being able to put things online on Twitter is a great way of doing that. Like after I'm proud of, oh, I think I made this cool thing, and then I can tell people, and then they can say, oh, that's pretty cool that you did. It's just like... It's a great way to keep you motivated also. I think there's also something there with like being able to share stuff. Like it's always when I've worked on bigger projects that have always been uh, with major publishers, heavy NDAs, you know, they have their marketing beats to hit and all the communication is controlled by them. Yeah. Um, it's always the case that you have like a, a significant um, sort of when nothing's being communicated out for a few months. Like, it gets kind of demoralizing, and then you put out a, 
a trailer or you go to a show or you do like press coverage and you get a big uplift at that point. And in the times in between, you're kind of, you have to, as a team, uplift each other. And that's a bit easier exactly. to do as a larger team. Yeah. Um, as a small team, I think it is, it can be, if we weren't putting stuff out and we weren't like sharing stuff, I think it would be really hard to stay motivated and to believe in what you were doing without getting any kind of feedback yep. um, throughout that process. Because it is a long process. And, they, yes. the, and there are going to be times when you feel unconfident about what you're doing and you think that everything's awful and you, you hate it. But they, you need some ways of like reminding yourself that yes, this is something that people react to. And even if that's just the fact that like you uh, feel like you know you forget what's exciting about the game when yeah. you first see it, because you've seen it so many times, you forget what's interesting about mm -hmm. that. But then you sort of put it in front of people, and they like they get excited by just the fact that there's little guys running backwards and forwards, and they kind of hit each other with swords, and it's cute. But oh, there's so <laughs> much blood, and like that's kind of like I'm almost almost blind to that now. You know, but for new players, that's a, it's just an exciting thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and seeing kind of something that you guys had envisioned come to life and then getting, um, you know, such great community support. It is, you know, it's a fantastic boost for, for you guys, for plausible concept. But on the other hand, there are a lot of young developers with ideas that they want to bring to life and they always struggle because they either don't have enough time or they don't have enough money to buy their own time right. to produce these things. How did you guys go about financing Bad North? Um, what were the issues that you guys faced when trying to bring this game to life? So initially we just financed it out of pocket, right? And that, that again comes from the to the benefit of having worked for several years on, at a proper job in the industry before starting this, because then like, because I've always had the idea that at some point I would probably want to go indie. I've been trying to like, you know, uh, live well within my means so I can build up a large amount of savings. Uh, so I just had a bunch of savings and I think Rich likewise. So, uh, so we did it out of pocket for, I think a little bit less than a year uh, before we we got in contact with the publisher, and, and then of course then the publisher uh, financed the, or you know just gave us a little bit of money each month so we didn't have to sort of. Yeah, so we, they they we didn't go to Rafiri mostly for the money. Like we, no. we take money from them, and we're still kind of eating into our savings. Um, but uh, largely that was because like the they've been paying for outsourcing, so for the. Porting for Xbox and PS4 been paid for by them. Paying for us to go to events like to go to GDC and to go to um, Gamescom just now. Uh, marketing and all these things like all of these kind of both the uh, financial and connections that they have to try uh, things and just organizing things and getting us like you yeah. know talking to the platform holders and oh, yeah. uh, arranging submission things and. Um, you know, we've had a couple of, uh, we've been on a couple of Nindy streams um, with Nintendo and, uh, you know, we have a, um exclusivity thing with Discord, with their new store. All of that's been handled by Raw Fury. And, like, if we had to do that ourselves, we, I, I wouldn't have worked on the game. Like, and we wouldn't have, and we also wouldn't have got as good deals, I don't think. Yeah. Because that's I don't have the connections, I don't have the, the you know, visibility and stuff. Yeah. So... Um, but yeah, like a, a big chunk of it is the fact that we, you know, we had savings beforehand. We both sort of decided in advance that we were going to 
not be employed for a while and yeah. we had savings as buffers for that um there is also a fact that uh being based in malma we it's not a super expensive place to live compared to a lot of like kind of tech hub sort of places um and there's a pretty good like safety net here as well in sweden so it's a little bit less scary to do that yeah um but it also like having had like several years of experience on high profile things we're both quite employable so if yeah. things didn't go well i was never worried that i could find a job like if i needed to get back into a job i you know wasn't too worried about that whereas if you don't have that employment experience and you just go straight india if that sort of collapses you don't necessarily have something to fall back on you just recently mentioned that raw fury is your publisher and they have handled a lot of um the marketing and the porting and etc you know and these kind of things that you may ne not necessarily have time for have you guys done any marketing on your end mostly well, through like social media type things so we still run all of the uh, oscar has his like twitter channel which is pretty big um i run our like branded social media channels um but a lot of that's kind of like community engagement and things like that most of the actual marketing and pr uh push has been done through raw fury contacting uh press and streamers and etc um most of that's been handled by then i don't think we've done a huge amount other than social media pushes you know most of it has just been like you know as i mean it all sort of comes back to this trying to make super nice things and, and then show the nice things to people and then like that kind of um yeah, that, that's sort of been our mark. And that's also how we came in contact with Raw Fury. Like, we've been posting cool gifts of the game on Twitter, and then they emailed us and like, hey, do you, wanna, do you need a publisher? Do you want to talk? So that's, uh, yeah. That's how I kind of imagined it. The world of uh, publishing is, is a bit of a mystery to me. So I guess you've partly answered my next question, which was, what, what's the process in which, uh, through which uh, an independent studio can take their game to a publisher or find a publisher? And what are the benefits and potentially the drawbacks of it all? I mean, I think in terms of like uh, the kind of publishers you're likely to go to as an indie company, I mean, you're looking at these like, uh, what are now being called like boutique publishers, places like Devolver, Raw Fury, um, what are some of the other ones? There's quite a few. I mean, Double Fire doing some stuff now. Um, I, I, there, there's a bunch of them uh, coming up. I forget names right now. But um, they're all pretty approachable, and they're used to working with small teams that aren't maybe the most like organized or like uh, business savvy. Um, but generally, I mean, in uh, Raw Fury's case, uh, they have a scout uh callum who your best thing is to send him a gift that shows off send him a gif on twitter that shows off what the interesting thing about your game is uh and start a conversation with that and like they will want to see builds they'll want to play builds um but generally generally it's kind of a like you send them something to get their attention um and if you can if you can show what's interesting about your game in a gif whether that's the art style or the mechanics or something, that's super handy because that means that A, they can get it straight away, but they can also like, uh, they know it's obviously marketable, which is, you know, a good thing to have. Um, they don't have conversations with them, send them a build, they'll play the build and see, again, the build should show off what's interesting about your game. It doesn't have to be super polished. 
they mentioned to us recently they signed a game uh i don't actually i won't say which one i don't actually remember which one but they said you know that the demo was not uh super strong but the it, it conveyed the ideas and they, they conveyed the potential for that game and they wanted to publish it because they saw there was something special here um and then it's a case of you know uh we went up to stockholm to meet them uh oh no we didn't we they came down to meet us i think yeah yeah they came down to, to meet us but you'll probably like meet up with them in person get to know each other do a bit of due diligence go over contracts sign the contracts and then you'll have a publishing deal um and I, it's, it was quite simple. It was quite simple, yeah. I mean, we we reached out to a couple of other publishers as well um, to check around, fill things out, and you should do that. You should try and like see what each of them are offering and what the interest at different places and what the feedback is from different places. Um, but I think a lot of like again, like these smaller publishers that are focusing on indie games, they are setting themselves up to be simple to work with. You know, there's not kind of like you know bigger traditional publishers, you know, they'll send you a contract that you're expected to like look through the contract with your lawyer and they expect you to negotiate a lot of the clauses because they're not good clauses. And then it's like four months of back and forth on contracts and like that's the sort of traditional model. Um, and some of the publishers have like indie focused uh, sections now, which I haven't dealt with, so I don't know, but I think the sort of the smaller publishers, it's, it's it's a good thing to go for because they're much more like focused on the kind of thing you're going to be doing, especially in your first indie game when you're not super like knowledgeable about the business side of things. They will like definitely be gentle with you because they are looking to help small teams. They are looking like not only altruistic way they're not like doing it out of the goodness of their hearts they want to make money as well but they want to do it alongside having like a love for the games and like uh an interest in the teams and the people in those teams yeah. so you'll find yourself having quite a personal relationship with the publisher as well which is really nice to have and that's also that's also since the indie uh like there really is an indie development community kind of. We know a lot, like we know most people making indie games in Malmo and we know a lot of people making indie games all over the world. So you can always ask people, you know, like, hey, what's it like to work with this publisher? Like, did they treat you fairly? Are things going well? Are you happy with it? So they, they really do have an, like, even if they could like potentially cheat you on a contract, they probably wouldn't do that because it really wouldn't like work with their long-term incentives. They they want to work with small teams. They want small. They want to have a reputation for looking after small teams. And exactly. like, if you speak to Jonas, who's like the CEO of Raw Fury, I've spoken to him a bunch, and like, you can tell that he's just like, he's been so burned previously by the way that publishers and developers work, because he's worked on both sides of that in like larger companies. And like, the whole reason why he started Raw Fury was to try and do things differently, like in a better way. And he wants to do things like and, and look after his teams and look after his developers. So, you know, that's kind of a core principle of what the company was founded to do. They sound like one of those companies that have had bad experiences in their previous history as a as individuals working for other companies or other publishers and then gone right that's it we want to build something that isn't going to do that and we want to change the way that we operate or you know companies operate from now on and we're going to be an example to that 
have they had any um, impact or um, have they got involved in kind of how the game Bad North was going to be developed and, and, and the, the path you guys were taking? Did they get involved in any of the um, the design stuff or the, the, the development stuff no, like that? Not very much at all. They've yeah. been, uh, they've been, and they've been really telling us that from the beginning that like we are not going to be a big part of we're going to give you feedback uh and we're going to say if there are things we like and we're going to have suggestions but if you don't want us to come with any feedback then we'll not come with any feedback uh but you know to the extent that you appreciate it we will have suggestions and feedback but you are not obliged to fo- to follow them and you you make the decisions and that 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 has really been the case yeah and we've had no we've Sorry. had no like uh publisher mandated uh designs no no nothing has come down from them that has been like this is something we want to see in the game this is something that we need to sell the game with this is something which again you 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 know is very very common with larger publishers like oh we we need the game to be this so we can sell it um we've never had anything like that from them and yeah ideas and suggestions some of which uh, we've incorporated into the game some of which we haven't yeah. Um, so which we wanted to, but didn't have time for. Like you know, it's uh, it's been quite healthy in that. They've been more involved in like the actual uh, timeline and publishing timeline and like uh, deadlines and stuff. So that's been sort of more. But that that's kind of one thing you sort of want from a publisher. And we we had some we have had some problems with like the uh, towards the end of the project we hit a pretty rough crunch period. Um, and there wasn't really flexibility to move the deadlines and stuff on that, which with a few months of like distance from it, like it was probably the right decision because it's hard to move an August release date backwards anywhere, like September, October, November. It's, you know, you don't want to be releasing during those months if you're small. So, uh, it's, you know, that that's where they've been like, um, sort of, uh, uh, taking control of things is more in the like timeline and the the deliverables and stuff like that rather than creative decisions and in many ways that is what you want from a publisher you want them to handle the business side of things sadly we are coming to the end of our conversation it's been fantastic i do want to ask you one last question before we um, call it a day um, and it is where do you guys see plausible concept in the next five years and do you guys have your next project already planned out? Uh, we we do not. We don't even know what the company will be. Then we we didn't really. We started this company just as a sort of legal entity to be able to produce uh, Bad North. So we never we haven't had the uh, conscious sort of. We haven't made the conscious conscious effort to sort of build a studio, but rather to make a game. Uh, now it has worked really well working together, I must say. So it, I could definitely see us working together, maybe in this configuration, maybe in other configurations in the future, maybe even straight after this game is done. But we haven't had any. Um, yeah, we're not we make decisions on that yet. Yeah, but it's yeah. also the thing that, like you know, we don't have the next game uh, planned out. Like I know Oscar has a few ideas for games. Yeah. I have a few ideas for games. But at the moment, we're still uh, very much focused on Bad North. Um, you know, we've hit release, but we still have uh, PC platforms to hit. We still have mobile platforms to hit. We uh, we also, you know, um, unfortunately, a few a few bugs made it through to the the release build. So we've been last couple of weeks, well, last week actually, 
actively working on like hammering out all of those bugs and getting you know patches in for console approval. Um, that those should be landing with players really soon. Um, it's a little bit frustrating for us at the moment and for the players that you know there are bugs in the game that are fixed, but they're not actually out to people yet. Um, but then also looking into doing some rebalancing and some uh, improvements to the game, potentially extending the game. Um, there's a lot of stuff still to do on uh, on Bad North, so yeah. we won't be moving on to anything else uh, anytime soon, anyway. Yeah, and I mean we we wouldn't really have the capacity to do like pre-production on one project where we were wrapping up this. We're just two people, uh, and and there's I have a depending on how if if we make enough money on this game for me to take a little bit of a break. I have some sort of more um, procedural art projects I would really like to do that are like probably not monetizable, but that I would just put out there for, for free. Cause I have a couple of those ideas that I've been sort of, uh, yeah, that I've been thinking about for a bit. So I, m I might do some of those before jumping into the next sort of proper project, bigger project. That's good. I, I could do with like taking a little bit of time off as well to do various things. Like that's one of the that's one of the things that's like is nice about being indie is that you're not really too locked into stuff. Like as yeah. long as you like at the moment it looks like uh, Bad North is gonna do well enough that we should we should do well off of it financially, which is great. It means that we can it means that we can continue to support it for a while. Uh, it means we can also we don't have to rush into making a new thing or rush into like getting jobs again or stuff like that. And it's one of the like if you can, one of the advantages of being indie is that you're not kind of locked into someone else's timeline all the yeah. time. That you have a bit more control and freedom to, yeah, maybe do some experiments, maybe build some skills, maybe just do some stuff uh, like on the side that isn't like working on a two to three year long project like most game projects are. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's been also because we, 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 we know quite a few people who have like more gone the trying to build a studio route. And a scary thing there is that if that doesn't, if that doesn't work out super well, uh, but you've had like, if you have people employed, for example, that you feel like runs responsibility towards, uh, it can be quite hard to, or like, you know, if you have a proper office or stuff like that, there's just sort of quite a bit more to lose there. Whereas if we, if this wouldn't have worked on, worked out for us, we could just sort of drop it in a second and do something else immediately. Yeah. Whatever you guys end up doing next, we, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And for our listeners, what consoles can they get hold um, of Bad North on? And if they wanted to get in touch with you guys, how can that be possible? Okay, so uh, the game's out now on uh, Switch and Xbox One and PS4. Uh, we will be coming to PC as a um, timed exclusive on Discord's new store. Discord opening store later this year. We can't say when because they haven't announced it yet, but when that comes out, we'll be there on day one. Uh, we'll also be coming to Steam and GOG before the end of the year and then to mobile platforms next year. So uh, that's where you can uh, get the game. There's a whole bunch of like uh, YouTube videos up if you want to check out what the game is before you buy. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us, I think the easiest thing is uh, through our the Bad North, at Bad North game, 
on Twitter is probably the easiest way to contact us or emailing vikings at badnorth.com. That's fantastic. Thank you both very much for being on this podcast and we genuinely wish you guys the best. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I want to thank you all for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it. And until next time, have a great week. Mm-hmm.